All right, well, let's look at Ephesians first. I, you're probably already there. So, uh, Ephesians chapters 1 to 3. Is this okay? I'm not, like, blowing your eardrums out? Okay. I, I have an apology to make, first of all. Um, last week, I was talking about, in Galatians 6, Paul said, focus on yourself, basically, and what you're doing for the kingdom, instead of spending most of your time criticizing or faulting others. Something to that effect. So we were talking about that, and I had referenced First Fruits of Zion and how they made a doctrinal shift, and they really... Sometimes some of the analyses of it got pretty personal. People were criticizing their motives and all this stuff. And I, I, I think I said something to the fact of some people should spend more time focusing on what they're doing for the kingdom themselves and stop wagging their lips about other people or something. And I don't know why, but after... No one talked to me about it, but afterwards I just felt a little twinge. I, I felt like... I. I didn't feel like that was in the spirit. At that point, I was beginning to rant because it's a pet peeve of mine when people criticize other people and never folk, and, and, and ignore themselves, right? So anyway, I, I want to apologize to you guys for that. Yeah, I, I, I really desire in whatever communicating I'm doing to do it in a humble and a gentle way because Yeshua is humble and gentle and without him we're not at all and I'm sure not, you know, so... You know, I, I just, when, when I feel that from him, I, I'm, I'm happy to say, okay, guys, that was me. I don't think that was God's spirit. So, yeah, don't learn from me on that one, okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. That sounds like a good plan. Yeah, well, um, here, here's a quote from Martin Luther for you. Uh, this is in Table Talk. It's these discussions that he had with some of his his primary disciples, and they wrote some of it down. He says, uh, the Hebrew language is the best language of all. If I were younger, I would want to learn this language because no one can really understand the scriptures without it. For although the New Testament is written in Greek, it is full of Hebraisms and Hebrew expressions. It has therefore been aptly said that the Hebrews drink from the spring, the Greeks drink from the stream that flows from it, and the Latins drink from the puddle. So his, his main thing there, of course, you know, in the academic world in the last hundred years, there has been question about the New Testament, or at least some of it being written in a Semitic language. But the point there is the New Testament is packed with Hebraisms either way. And I thought I'd just point out two of them to you in um, Paul's letter here to this early, shall we call it a Messianic community? They believed in Yeshua the Messiah, you know, and they were a community. So we'll call them an early Messianic community in, in, in the city of Ephesus. Um, Firstly, the way he opens this, this letter is classic. In verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Master Yeshua the Messiah. And then he goes on to list all these things that he does and all, all these things, uh, who he is. He describes him. And uh, that's a classic opening way to pray uh, in the Jewish tradition of prayer. You probably notice, like, every single blessing we say begins with Baruch, Right? Baruch atah, blessed are you. Um, here he's saying, blessed is he, blessed is the, uh, the God and Father. Actually, there, there's some interesting parallels, too, between what he, uh, what he lists here and uh, like the backbone of the daily Jewish prayers from that era and today. It's like the Shemona Esrei, the 18 blessings prayer. It begins by talking about the fathers, and so that's how he opens this. It's, it's kind of neat. So, you know, if you want to like, kind of get in the groove of the more traditional Jewish way of praying, uh, you know, in your personal prayer time, just say, blessed are you, Father, and then list a bunch of things that he's done and say a bunch of things about who he is. 
And uh, you'll, be, you'll be getting in the groove there with that. You can never go wrong, you know, because, you know, what he's done doesn't change re- regardless of how we feel. And uh, who he is is unalterable too. So that's nice, you know. Um, then also in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, he uses this phrase, the sons of disobedience. Sounds like really rebellious kids or something, hey? But um, that, that's a classic Hebraism also. If, uh, sometimes they'll say, quote, the sons of whatever, and as an adjective, that's what describes you. So, uh, for instance, there's the sons of light in, uh, in another section of Paul's letters and in the Essene uh, literature from the Dead Sea Scrolls. The sons of light means someone who's enlightened or someone who's on the light side as opposed to the dark side, right? So it's just kind of cool that, like, Paul's Hebraic thinking comes through even in, like, a letter that we have in English that was translated from Greek. So that's, like, a whole sons of disobedience thing. Um, let's, just, let's just begin looking through some of Ephesus. We're really going to key in on Ephesus, I mean, yeah, on Ephesians 2. Uh, we can look at a couple things in the beginning, though. I, I love how Paul talks about Yeshua in this letter. Uh, I, I just find, like, when people talk about Yeshua when they preach or stuff in the scriptures that's, like, explicitly about Yeshua, that's what really turns me on. Like, I, I really lock in at that point, you know? And then some other stuff, like in Leviticus, where it talks about the ritual for cleansing the leper. Um, that's cool, like, on a literal level. It seems kind of like some mystical symbolism going on and stuff. But when I think about that in the grid of what it communicates about the gospel of Messiah, that's what really gets me going, too. So we're going to be looking at that later. So let's just look at what Paul says about Yeshua, uh, a couple things about him in here. Um, firstly, in verse 3, he says that the Father blessed us in Messiah. So, like, all the blessings of the Torah, we experience them when we live our life in the parameters of who Yeshua is, like in relationship with him, discipleship to the master, you know, that's where the blessing is. So outside of Yeshua, you don't get the blessings of the Torah. You get like the litany of curses that we all cringe when we read every year, right? Um, then in 1 verse 7, he says that we are redeemed through Yeshua's blood. And that's really precious. Actually, I'll share something with you uh, how many of you have been to a Jewish-style betrothal before? Okay, I probably... I, I have, because I got betrothed to Genevieve, and Genevieve has, because she got betrothed to me at the same event, coincidentally. And, um, that, you know, and we, did it, we did it like in the, kind of the, the, the biblical-slash-traditional Jewish way. And uh, one of the things you do in a betrothal, which is like, you know, the formalized engagement, in the West, you know, you... You pop the question, you give her the ring, and it's a, it's a good deal. You know, if you're, if you're smart, you'll be on good terms with the girl's dad and ask him first, of course. But, but in the traditional Jewish betrothal, it's a much more serious event. It's like you do the legal side of your marriage ceremony, basically, at the betrothal, right? Um, anyway, one of the things you do at the betrothal is the suitor gives the father of the bride-to-be a mohar, M-O-H-A-R, mohar, and that means like the bridal price. And what he does is he gives them like five silver coins. And silver in Hebrew represents redemption. So it's uh, like kind of redeeming the girl or whatever. And five is the number of life. So it's kind of like this symbolic way of the suitor saying, I'm committing to give my life for your daughter to lay down my life to serve her in an ongoing way. Um, that's the idea. So Yeshua is like the ultimate of that. 
because he literally gave his life. He gave his five silver coins, his very soul. He poured it out on the ground, you know, in a very, very brutal um, death so that you could belong to him, so that we could belong to him. Yeah, so I, I, I value that. I don't know, I think about that every day when we pray. It's like, wow, you know, it was like almost 2,000 years ago. That's a long time, but just that my Savior, whom I love, like underwent some brutal stuff so that I could belong to him, you know? It's like, and it, you can never stop appreciating that. So I like, I, I like how Paul brings that out. Um, in verse 6, he says that Yeshua is the beloved. Isn't that cool? That's like, that's a title of the Messiah. The beloved. Yeshua is the beloved. So like, he's the beloved of the Father. Uh, I think that's probably the primary meaning. He's the beloved of the bride also. Us. It means the Father loves him. Here, here's, here's, here's a question. Have you ever not felt loved by God? I have. Like, some days it's like, I don't feel like God even exists. And if he does exist, I'm just not feeling the love, you know? I don't know, maybe you're going through harsh situations, or you've suffered abuse, or you're hurting, or life is just not fun, or you're just, like, feeling really unplugged spiritually. I don't know. Have you ever felt like that for weeks or months at a time? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've struggled with pretty harsh depression, especially in my teens. And especially when you're wrestling with depression, you do not feel the love. It's kind of the rule, right? But I, I'm, I'm just thinking about this. And like, we've been talking about this for almost a month off and on, you know, about when we really focus on like Messiah's passion and the sufferings that he went through, often it awakens a new love in our hearts and we really see the Father's love demonstrated. But just, I'm thinking like, if Yeshua is the beloved, then... Like, the closer we can get to him, and the more we can experience life, like, in close rapport with him, I think we're going to feel the Father's love more. Because, you know, the Father's always loving the Son. The Son's the beloved, right? So when we get in the Son, and when we get, like, in a really close relationship with him, you're going to start feeling the love again. So, that's something I feel like I'm learning on a personal level. So if you have times when you're like, I do not feel the love right now, I don't know if God loves me. I encourage you, you're not going to want to like, you're probably not going to want to think about Yeshua or start talking with him or reading the Gospels. But that's the time when you really want to dig into the Gospels. That's the time when you want to recenter on Messiah. Um, that, that's, that's a practical suggestion that I would make uh, based on that concept. That's what I get out of that, like Yeshua being the beloved. Um, in 122, I like this one too. He says that Yeshua... Um, in verse 20, he says he ra- the Father raised Yeshua from the dead, and then he exalted him over like everybody in this world and the world to come. And then in verse 22, it says, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, the ecclesia, the congregation, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So that's special, hey? Like the Father has given Yeshua to us as a community. As our head. And that means, like, for any local assembly of believers, even though Yeshua is invisible and he hasn't really been around for a couple thousand years, like, he's there and he's our head. That means he's like, he's leading us, he's initiating what happens in our community life. And that's what defines us as a congregation. So, you know, where Yeshua takes us is where we're going to go. And our objective is, where are you taking us, Yeshua? Because you're, you're the head of this body. 
Yeah. So I really like chapter 1 and how it gives us a look at our beloved Savior. I don't know, some of this is pretty high language too, like saying that we as the body are the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Wow, I, I don't feel like I understand that. All I know is like somehow He fills, he fills us and He reaches the world through us. And um, okay, here's, here's another verse like that. It's, okay, in verse 10 it says, Okay, this is the New American Standard Bible. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Did you get that? It's like, I don't know, he loses me after about five words there, honestly. Um, so I, 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 uh, I brought a nice collection of books today because I want to break down some of this stuff with you guys. This is a cool book, The New Testament from 26 Translations. Um, it has like all of these different translations and their perspectives on it. This was um, this was edited by Curtis Vaughn, who was my dad's favorite professor at Southern Baptist Seminary in Dallas, Texas. I was named after him, and uh, he gave me a Greek New Testament as a baby gift. And uh, so, anyway, this is kind of a special book. So let's let's uh, let's look at a couple different versions of that verse in here because it seems like it's really big like overarching you know like bigger than global uh in terms of like what the thought like the the how yeshua fits into the plan you know so um let's see what verse is that verse 10 okay so the king jim king jimmy says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Okay, so I'll just I'll read you a couple of different versions here, and maybe we can kind of get a, fi- a bigger picture. Um, Unto a dispensation of the fullness of the times to sum up all things in Christ. That's the ASV, the ALF, whatever that is, says, Unto the dispensation of the fullness of the times to gather up together all things in Christ. Uh, Weymouth, for the government of the world when the times are ripe for it, the purpose which he cherished in his own mind of restoring the whole creation to find its one head in Christ. I like that one. For the government of the world when the times are ripe for it. Um, Knox, Knox's translation, to give history its fulfillment by resuming everything in him. I like that one. Uh, RSV, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Um whatever that's short of, that all human history shall be consummated in Christ. Uh, TCNT, in view of that divine order which was to mark the completion of the ages when he should make everything center in him. I like that one. Everything centered in Messiah. Yeah. So those are a couple like different translations that try to give the fuller meaning. What, what do you get out of that? Yeah. Yeah, like he's ultimately going to be the focal point. I don't I I get the picture too like everything in the universe is on a collision course with Messiah and if you don't like him it's going to be painful. You know, like for people who have problems with the the the, the central like the doctrine of the centrality of Messiah, like it's you're not going to be happy in the end, you know? So I don't we can we can never be too Yeshua centered, hey? Because it like that's where it's going to be. It's going to be all about him. And uh, yeah, that's kind of what I, that's what I got out of that verse. 
and about the kingdom. Right. To have a king with absolute power. Thankfully, he'll be very benevolent. Unless you, like, rebel. Um, that's kind of scary, their whole rod of iron thing. Yeah, okay, let's look at um, chapter 2 and some stuff here, too. Um, this is, like, one of the big verses you memorize in Sunday school so that you can rattle it off, and you rattle it off so many times you kind of forget what it really means. Uh, often, that was the case for me, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it's the gift of Elohim, God. Not as a result of work so that no one can boast. And then in verse 10 it says that he did create us in Messiah Yeshua so that we can do good works. So it's kind of like part of the, part of the equation too. So let me ask you something. Okay, it's, if, if, if it says in Matthew 1 that Yeshua's mission was to save his people from their sins, and if it says in 1 John that sin is anomia, it's lawlessness or toilessness, then could it be that part of salvation is Yeshua saving us from breaking the Torah? Could it be? Yeah, I, I think I, you can make a pretty strong biblical case for that, you know. First John says sin is lawlessness. It's transgressing God's law, right? So if God says something in his law, he says do this, and we don't do it for whatever reasons, the Bible says that's sin, and Yeshua came to save us from that. Or if God says, like, don't do this, and we do it, that's sin, and, you know, the Bible says Yeshua came to save us from it. So, you know, you could kind of say that, like, the expression of salvation will be us doing the stuff God said in the Bible. Uh, another way of saying that would be Torah observance. Like, Torah observance means doing the stuff in the Bible, right? Um, now, let's, let's, let's carry that thought on a little farther. If we replace this where it says you've been saved, if you replace that concept with Torah observance, because doing the Bible, observing the Torah, is the natural result of being saved... I think we could draw that conclusion. Then what, 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 what is that saying? What, what it's saying is like, okay, so if you're, if you're doing stuff in the Bible, if you're observing the Torah, if you're obeying God, you're doing it by His grace. It's because of His grace. And it's a faith thing, and it's a gift from Him. It's not of you. Right? Uh, like, okay, sometimes in the Messianic community, because we're doing some things from the Torah that a lot of the body of Messiah isn't doing, it's easy to say, these are my distinctives, and this is what I do, and I see the light, and I just don't understand why these people don't get it, and why they don't see the light, and why aren't they doing this stuff, you know? And, I mean, okay, seriously, sometimes I do wrestle with that. It's like God said over and over in Exodus 12 and 13, Passover is forever for my people for all time, you know, and... I don't know. So sometimes you can read that and you can be like, how come people don't get it? And that verse, I believe, is there for us just to say, like, stay humble because the only reason you're doing these things is because God decided for you to. Like, he initiated that. You didn't. It's, It's a grace thing. And it's like faith, which is the opposite of, like, about us initiating and us doing the work and stuff, eh? So... Yeah, I feel like it's a pretty relevant verse for, for, for us as a, as a congregation. Okay, um, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, this is interesting. Sometimes Paul, in his epistles, he'll address specific subsets of that community, right? Um, in the early, in the early uh, messianic communities, you know, the early church, 
like you'll have people from a Jewish background, and then you'll have people who hung out at the synagogue but maybe weren't Jewish, and then you'll have ex-hardcore pagans, right? And you can tell, sometimes Paul will be speaking to the ex-hardcore pagans. Like in Galatians, you remember he talked about them going back to uh, observing certain superstitious garbage stuff. Um, so it's really important to take note of that, right? Who is he talking to here? So here's an example. E- Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Messiah Yeshua, for the sake of you Gentiles. So who is he talking to there? Quote, you Gentiles. Okay, in some... Okay, some people in the Messianic community have this understanding of Gentile as a dirty word. It's like, don't call me a Gentile, that's a dirty word. And, okay, you're more than a Gentile. If your idea of Gentile means you have nothing to do with Israel and whatever, then no, you're not a Gentile. But if Gentile means like you're not technically Jewish, or if that's your background... That's okay. I just, I just want to point out there that Paul called these people in a community from a non-Jewish background, he called them Gentiles, and that was okay. Can, can we agree with, on that? Okay, so that's important. That's an important verse to factor in, because some people like to ignore verses like that. So let's back up and look at Ephesians 2 and see what he has to say to people from a non-Jewish background. I mean, that does, this isn't going to apply to any of us, because we all grew up in the synagogue, right? And we're all very, very Jewish. Um, <laughs> No. So that means that this does apply to us. So let's read Ephesians 2. Like he was, he's like talking to us with today. Um, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, it begins with, therefore. And when you see the word therefore, you have to ask that question. What is the therefore, therefore? What is therefore, therefore? It's there to say, okay, so... I establish a set of facts or something, and then I go on to say, therefore, let's draw a conclusion, right? So starting in verse 11, he starts talking about the relationship between Jewish and Gentile believers in the body of Messiah. But he, he prefaces that with all of this stuff about who we are in Yeshua, right? So he's saying, this is who you are in Yeshua. This is what the Father's done for you. Therefore, and then he goes to the nitty-gritty of, um, uh, of how Jewish and Gentile people interrelate. And and how believers from the nations fit into this thing, eh? So um, that's really relevant today. And let's, let's, let's break that down together. Um, firstly, in verse 11, he says, you the Gentiles, quote, in the flesh. What does in the flesh mean? Human body. That's Paul's, that's Paul's talk for, like, physical, right? Okay, so when he says Gentiles in the flesh, that means you physical Gentiles. Why did he specify that? Why did he have to specify, okay, physically you're Gentiles? Maybe because on a deeper spiritual level he saw them as more than that? Could that be the case? I think so. Okay, let's continue on. You who are called, quote, uncircumcision by the so-called, quote, circumcision. Uh, what, is, what, is Paul, what does that mean in Paul talk? The, the circumcision is who? Yeah, it's like technically Jewish people, right? And then the uncircumcision are people who aren't Jewish, right? So that's interesting too. It's like you who... Okay, so you who physically are Gentiles and Jewish people call you non-Jews. Okay, so that, that's how he starts. That's kind of interesting. It means that maybe he sees, like, quote, Gentile believers as being more than that. Maybe he sees them as being at least partially Jewish in terms of well, you know, when you believe in the Bible and you do stuff from the Bible, it kind of looks Jewish sometimes. Maybe that's what he's talking about. 
And I mean, like, I'm not, I'm not, with where we're going in this, I'm not saying it's about being Jewish or not, right? It's just this was a big issue in the first century. And you know what? With Messianic Judaism today, it's still, it's still an issue in some congregations, right? So we want to we see what Paul has to say about this. Um, verse 13, I love verse 13. He says, Now, in Messiah Yeshua, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. So, keyword there, brought near. Um, let's back, we, we can back up one verse. He says brought near. The, it raises the question, brought near to what? It's like, okay, being brought near, but to, to what or to who, eh? So maybe, maybe verse 12 helps us understand that. He, he lists like three things. You were at that time, you were separate, you were excluded, and you were strangers. So you were separate from a person, Messiah. You were excluded from a people, Israel, and you were strangers to what? The covenants of promise, which is what defines the people of God. And you didn't have any hope and you were without God. So, did you notice that's in past tense? Okay, well, let, let's break that down. I, as we go through this, um, I think you could, I, I would label this like, this as inclusion theology. Right? Um, you know, historically, the church has often been guilty of replacement theology, which says, we are the new Israel, we're the spiritual Israel, God is done with the Jewish people, he's kind of thrown them in the wastebasket of history, and now it's all about us. So you have Bibles where, you know, you have the book of Isaiah, and it has promises to Israel, and that, those Bibles in the, in, you know, in the chapter headings will say, promises to the church. Uh, I'm trying to remember if that's the Scofield Bible or something. It's a pretty, it's a pretty famous Bible, and it says stuff like that, right? That, that's uh, that's replacement theology. Um, let's just look at Ephesians two and see if replacement theology really flies, or if Paul more teaches something along the lines of inclusion theology. That's what that's what we'll call it. Um, yeah, let's break down these these three things. Okay, separate it from Messiah. That's pretty obvious, right? You were separate from him. Now you have this union with Messiah. You. Uh, you, you have a genuine relationship with him. Um, secondly, he says you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Okay, that word commonwealth, how, how do your translations render that word? Citizenship. citizenship. What's that? National life. Okay. Yeah, I looked up the word. The Greek word is like Strong's 4174, and it's politia. Everybody say politia. Um, it's from, it's, it's, its root is Strong's 4177, polites. Everybody say polites. Yeah, it's, it's from where we get the words like politician, uh, policy, police. All of these words. Police have to do with civic life, right? A politician has to do with national life on a political level. Uh, policy is what governs the way a system runs. So all of these English words that are spin-offs of this original Greek word give us a better understanding. Um, this, 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 this root word, polites, it turns up four other times in the, uh, the New Testament, the apostolic scriptures, and in those other four times it's translated as citizen. All right? So, um, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. What's this? It's my passport. 
essentially, what does it say? It says, I'm a citizen of this country. Uh, the inference is, I live in this country, these people are my people, and I live by the rules of this country also. I'm governed by the, the law of Canada. That's the idea, hey? So, I'm going to watch this really closely, because this is worth at least five grand on the black market, and I don't trust any of you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, Right. Because you also have the protection of the government, not just, not just following the laws, but you are guaranteed their intervention. Right, yeah, Canada will go for bat, uh, for, bat for you if you're in trouble. I, I'm, I'm repeating you not because I'm dumb, but because it's for our live stream friends. Yeah. Okay, so, so anyway, does that give us a fuller understanding of this? Paul is talking to Gentile believers from a Gentile background, and he said you were past tense, excluded from this word of Israel. Uh, citizenship in Israel, the national life of Israel, living by the rules that Israel lives by? Could we draw that conclusion based on that word? It's like when you come to faith in Messiah, you are included in greater Israel. And there are, there are real privileges with that. There are rights included in that. But there are, there are also um, responsibilities. It's like you have a new, you're living in a new system. There are maybe a new set of customs for you to adopt. Maybe there are some new, uh, new rules. Maybe there's some new house rules that you're not used to, you know. Uh, it, maybe it involves some change. Yeah. Okay, so that's, um, here actually I'm going to read to you a little bit from, this is like some commentary from David Stern. He was a pioneer Messianic Jew. He lives in Jerusalem. Um, he's, I think he's in his 80s now. I love this. Um, Jewish New Testament commentary. It's kind of like, if, I, I highly recommend it if you want to understand passages better. Because like, okay, the, the whole movement that we're in, it's about returning to the Bible and doing things by the Bible, right? So, you know, commentary like this is helpful. It helps us understand the word better. I'll, I'll read to you a little section from here, um, what, what Stern has to say about this. Um, so, you were estranged excluded, alienated from the national life of Israel. The Greek word translated national life is politia, which gives us English words like polity and politics. Arndt in Gingrich's, a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, offers as possible meanings citizenship, commonwealth, state, way of life, conduct. But Gerhard Kittel's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament points out that in the Septuagint, what's the Septuagint? Yeah, Greek, Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? Yeah. Politia in the Septuagint, quote, does not mean civil rights, constitution, or state, but rather the pious order of life which, ordained by the law of Moses, is inherited from the fathers. With one exception, it is a religious and moral concept rather than a political concept. It denotes the walk determined by the Mosaic law. So Paul was writing to a bunch of people who read the Septuagint, who read the Hebrew Bible translated into Greek. And so to them, this word politia was used as like doing the Torah, basically. So it's like, you used to be excluded from that, now you're in. This, that's like, that's our heritage. Uh, he goes on to say, the same article states that in the present verse, politia means civil rights, it is like what you said, Julie, civil rights, and is, quote, used in the figurative sense of the privileged religious position of Israel as the recipient of the promise, 
corresponding to uh, deficiency. Yeah, I'll leave it there for, for that. But good reading. I recommend David Stern if uh, you haven't read him before. Page two. How, how does Paul Harvey say it? No, I don't know. Yeah, but when he goes to another page in his notes, he always says, like, page, whatever. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, okay, page two. Let's, 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 like, going on with that. In uh, chapter two, verse 19, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. No longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints, the holy people, and are of God's household. So it's like, this is your family now, this is your home. Your fellow citizens. Fellow citizens of what? Israel. Israel yeah. In the context, uh, another place he says, our citizenship is in heaven. So that, that's part of the deal. And then, in, okay, and then in 3 verse 6, how does that work on a practical level? This is, this is cool. He says, um, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Messiah Yeshua through the gospel. Okay, fellow heirs of what? It's another one of those things where he says a fellow heir and you have to say, well, of what? What's the promise? What are some of the promises in the Abrahamic covenant, say, or the, 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 the covenant with Israel? Yeah, that was like one of the big ones he said over and over, I'm going to give you the land of Israel forever. Yeah, his blessing. Having him side with you in fights. That's always nice. Just stop and think about that though. Like, Could we draw the conclusion that part of the inheritance of every believer, including like total hardcore Gentiles, is when Yeshua comes back, he will be inheriting the land of Israel. According to Ezekiel, the last eight chapters of Ezekiel, could it be that you'll be there with him? Could it be that you'll be a fellow heir? as his bride. I mean, I, I really hope that we get to like be close to Yeshua in the Messianic era as the bride, you know? So if he's living in Israel, if he's ruling on the throne of David from Jerusalem, I don't know, maybe we'll get to live in his neighborhood. So, that could be part of your future. Yeah. Sure, you're going to Israel in like May, aren't you? Yeah, you'll get to like have a look at your, maybe your future real estate or something. You're like, so Yeshua, where are we going to live in the, in the kingdom when you come back, hey? It's like, I, I really like that area. Maybe I could have that hill. <laughs> yeah. And again, like, okay, you could say, people could hear that and be like, freak out and be like, that's replacement theology. They believe that Gentiles are going to take over the land of Israel. And no, that's not true. <coughs> Yeshua is going to take over the land of Israel and his friends are going to be in on the deal. And it doesn't matter if they're Jewish or Gentile. That's my understanding. So, I don't know, throw, st- throw Bibles and stuff at me if you think I'm wrong or you think I'm crazy, okay? Um, <laughs> here, I- I'm going to read you another little section from another book. Um, this is a book called Vintage Church by a pastor named Mark Driscoll. I've really been enjoying listening to Mark Driscoll's sermons lately. He's really passionate. He yells. Um, he's, he's like, he's a boxer, or he used to be a boxer. And, and he's also like, 
he's kind of half stand-up comedian, half boxer, half like theologian. Well, I guess he's thirds, you could say. Anyway, I, I really like some of his stuff. He's kind of, uh, I've been enjoying listening to him. And So anyway, I'm reading this book right now, Vintage Church. And uh, he has a little section in here called, What is the Relationship Between Israel and the Church? And let's just like turn on our critical thinking apparatuses. I guess there'll be apparati technically, right? Um, yeah, because octopus, octopi, so apparatus, apparati, right? So let's turn on our critical thinking apparati, and uh, let's just like let's just read this and uh, and just see what we. And he he covers a couple different uh, theological perspectives here. See what we think. He says the church is not Israel. Israel is an ethnicity, a nation, and a religious system. The church is none of these. Okay, stop. What do you think of that? Based on Ephesians 2, do you think it's possible to simply categorically say the church isn't Israel? I don't, from, from everything I hear Paul saying in Ephesians 2, he's trying to say you're part of this thing. Okay? Um, he says the church is none of these, including a nation. I do think of how Peter says you are a holy nation. So I'm just, we're just thinking um, objectively here. When the Bible, Old and New Testaments, uses the term Israel, it always means a group of Jewish people, not the, quote, ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, Revelation 5.9, which is the church. So I don't know. I'm going to introduce another term to you there. Um, okay, we talked about replacement theology. We talked about inclusion theology, which is my position. This would be what I would label separatist theology. Separatist theology says... There is a separation between the Gentile church and the people of Israel, and never the twain shall meet, basically. All right? And I personally feel like separatist theology glosses over a lot of key verses and chapters. Anyway, let's keep reading. Some, next paragraph, some Reformed theologians see Israel as having been replaced by the church so that it is defined as spiritual Israel. The church in the New Covenant occupies the place that Israel occupied in the Old. But that would mean God reneges on his promises to the ethnic children of Abraham. And then he lists some verses where God makes promises that he has yet to have made good on to Israel. So, like, kudos to, to uh, Mark Driscoll for that. He does say we don't believe in replacement theology. Um, God made promises to ethnic Israel and he's not going back on them. Next paragraph. Older dispensational theologians in the vein of Louis Sperry Schaefer see Israel and the church as essentially two different peoples with whom God works separately throughout eternity. Okay? So there's that separatist theology idea. Their defining hermeneutic, which is a method of interpretation, is never to blur the distinction between Israel and the church. But that negates the statements of God breaking down the dividing wall to form one new humanity. And then he has the Ephesians 2 verse. All right? So it, it, it's a challenge, isn't it? If you have a strict separatist theology, then you have to ignore the fact that God broke down the dividing wall. So uh, let, let's, let's look at... This is his conclusion. Let's look at this paragraph and tell me what you think. It seems best to say that there's one people of God saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the promised Messiah alone, who are organized in different administering institutions of God's one kingdom purpose. The physical and spiritual descendants of Abraham, Jewish people, and especially Jewish believers, are the firstborn of God's working. With the establishment of the new covenant in Acts 2, the people from every tribe and language and people and nation join in the body of Christ, 
sharing in the inaugurated promises of the new covenant, but not in the Mosaic religion and national structure of Israel. Let's stop there. What do you think of that statement? Based on Ephesians 2, do you think you can categorically say uh, people from every language and nation join in the body of Christ, sharing in the inaugurated promises of the new covenant, but not in the Mosaic religion and national structure of Israel? National structure means politia. Paul just said you were excluded from that, implying you're included now. Eh? So the challenge is to believe all the verses, factor all the verses into our theology. Eh? Um, I, I really love Mark for saying this next thing. He says, the Old Testament prophecies of a national restoration of Israel, and then he references these last chapters in Ezekiel that are a picture of the Messianic era, and uh, Acts 1, 5, remember the apostle said, well, is, is it this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And Yeshua didn't say, guys, you're missing the point, that's not going to happen. He just kind of said, it's a matter of timing, and it's up to the Father, the timing. So, okay, so he says, the Old Testament prophecies of a national restoration of Israel will be fulfilled by racially Jewish Christians in the millennium, who finally, quote, shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and holy nation. Okay, so that's kind of cool. He does anticipate that these prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled will be enjoyed by ethnically Jewish Christians in the Messianic era. But again, is that raising up that middle wall of partition? Is that separatist theology? Does Ephesians 2 really countenance that? I don't think so. So, you know, like I, like I said, I really, uh, Mark Driscoll, he's very Yeshua-centered. Um, he's, he's doing a great job in Seattle bringing people to, to faith. A lot of, like, people that generally never, like, would go to church and stuff. But uh, I just wanted to, I wanted to read that, par- that, that section to you and just see what you think, you know. So, like, is this a pretty good overview of the, the positions out there? Uh, and here's another verse that echoes that. I left the best for last. The third thing that Paul says the Gentile believers were strangers to is the covenants of promise. In other words, you're in now. Did you notice he said covenants in the plural? Which covenants are those? Okay, but seriously, think about that. He didn't say covenant of promise, i.e. the New Testament. He said covenants inferring previous covenants in addition to the New Covenant. Okay, that, this is a huge, huge, huge verse. Like, um, I, I, I love my dad and I have theological conversations with him sometime. You know, he went to seminary. He was a Southern Baptist and Alliance pastor and he lives in Ottawa now and we talk on the phone sometimes. And so, you know, he, he, we have talks about things that I, that I believe. And um, one of the things, he, he, his stance is the new covenant is the only one that currently is valid and all the previous ones are annulled and, and done away with and stuff, right? And so this is a verse that I've, I've brought up and I've brought up in, in conversation with other people too. He said, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. Okay? So f- two, two things we can gather from this. It's more than just the new covenant that we're a part of, that we are sharers in. You know, and covenants imply promises, they imply privileges, responsibilities, all this stuff, right? Secondly, Paul saw the covenants of the Old Testament not as covenants of legalism and law, or works, Paul saw the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, as covenants of promise. That's a very positive view of God's covenants. Right? So I just, if I could give you like one really good piece of ammo 
for theological conversations, I'm going to drop that one in, okay? That's like your, like your anti-tank missile launcher, right? Huge, all right? Because, like, I, I care about this stuff, you guys. Like, we're doing some stuff differently than most of the Christian world, and I really don't want to get wonky. Like, I really want to be biblical, right? And so that's why, like, I'm taking time to talk about this, because this is about who we are, and it starts with your identity, and from there, it'll be expressed in how you do life and stuff, right? So that's why I'm like, I don't know, it's, I, I feel like I, I'm kind of preaching to the choir, like we already believe this, right? But I just, I want us to be really strong in this. Because like, no, like, Paul is really widely accepted, right? If, if you're like doing stuff from the Old Testament, people will usually spit Paul at you to try and tell you that you shouldn't be doing that, right? So just spit some Paul back. It's kind of the idea. So here's a couple more verses. Um, Chapter 2, verse 15. It says that, okay, in verse 14, it says, Yeshua is our peace. He broke down the dividing wall. Okay, the dividing wall, you'll notice David Stern's translation had the machitza. The machitza in in the temple, in the second temple era, was this literal wall. Archaeologists have even uncovered the plaques that were all along this wall. And it said, Gentiles can go no further than this in the temple under pain of death. So, like, if you were Gentile, you are not allowed into the inner courts of the temple, or you die. And I don't know how they tell if you're a Gentile or not. I mean, there's kind of like the, hey, I'm not going to go there right now. But um, anyway, if you're a Gentile, you're going to die, right? And, and, and that's, contextually, that's what Paul was talking about. He's saying, Gentiles are no longer on, in the outer courts. You can mingle with the Jewish people and with national Israel in your worship of God. Um, he goes on to say, so Yeshua is our shalom. So like if there's tension in the body of Messiah between Messianic Jews and Gentiles, it's because Yeshua is not central. When Yeshua becomes central in our theology, he's the shalom, and, and that's, that's like the litmus test. Genevieve. In verse 15, this is, going, this is like a classic verse that people will say, will refer to when they say the law is abolished. Um, the New American Standard Bible says, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Okay? Um, That's how many Bible translations will have it. They'll say the enmity is the law, and that's what Yeshua abolished. Now let me ask you, did Yeshua say that he came to abolish the law? Did he say that we should even think that? No. He said, don't even think that I came to abolish the law, right? So we're not allowed to think that. That's like, that theological conclusion is out of bounds, right? Blow the whistle on that one, referee, right? So what's he talking about? Um, David Stern, in his, his, his commentary, he has an excellent commentary on that. I'm not going to go into it. But the Greek there can be read in one of two ways. Um, and the New American Standard Bible, when it inserts words for clarity, it italicizes them. And which is here is italicized, okay? So I'm going to read this to you. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is, those words aren't there. So it says the enmity of the law of commandment. So the, like, uh, for instance, uh, David Stern's Complete Jewish Bible or the Catholic Jerusalem Bible, they will say that he abolished the enmity which was caused by the Torah, which... Uh, which was given occasion by the Torah, right? So here's the question. Did Yeshua abolish the enmity or did he abolish the Torah? 
we're forced, if we want to be consistent with Scripture, to say, he abolished the enmity. And that's a really good thing. I'm ready to let that go. The enmity, right? Greg? In practical terms, how would that be expressed? Yes, Cindy. excellent which uh, which version is that oh that's fun I like reading the message the psalms and the message are really cool but anyway yeah that's okay excellent here Greg you'd asked what that looks like I'll I'll give you a couple of scenarios Um, I'll start with messianic people when we use the Torah and the fact that we're observant as like leverage against our Christian brothers and sisters we're holding on to the enmity Okay, so if like, it's like, you know what, they're having a, like a, a worship event and, you know, maybe it's just open to anyone who wants to go and it's on some, let's say, I don't know, Tuesday evening, but I don't want to hang out with those people because I do more of the Torah than they do. That's holding on to the enmity, right? Um, or Genevieve and I, we like to hang out with a bunch of Christian kids at these potluck things on Thursday evening in Saskatoon. If we were to say, you know what? We do the Torah, and they don't do some of the stuff that we do, so, you know, we can't really hang out with them. That's holding on to the enmity. Um, In my opinion, those would be some examples. On the Christian side, if people say, oh, you know, well, you're a little bit weird, and we can't really have very close fellowship with you because you don't eat pork, that's holding on to the enmity from the Christian side. You know what I'm saying? It's like when you let the Torah become an issue, relationally speaking, in my opinion, that's holding on to the enmity. I don't know. What do you guys think? What are some practical things we can get out of this? The enmity just sounds like, you know, we're in and you're not. Right. We have truth and don't, so. Right. Yeah, excellent. When you say we're in and you're not. Okay. Yeah, use the Torah as a personal guide. That's excellent. So when we use the Torah against each other, when we judge other people based on the Torah, that's like holding on to the enmity that Yeshua came to abolish. That's what I get out of it. Um, and you get the picture too that in his dealings with a common person, that was the kind of stuff Yeshua absolutely hated. You know, like mm. the, the fallen person out of the gutter or, you know, he'd associate with the low lives, but to use the Torah as a weapon or, or, or any kind of belief as a weapon, that's what he just despised. Right. Yeah, his choicest words for were the really, really religious people. Yeah, right. Who didn't have warm hearts, for sure. Um, in two sixteen, he says the cross is what brings us together. So what the cross represents is our common ground. When we focus on that, we're going to be doing well. Um, in two verse twenty, he says that every messianic community is founded on the prophets and the apostles. Right. So this is this is significant for us as a community. Our foundation is the prophets, which is what? Basically the Hebrew Bible, which was written by the prophets of Israel, and the apostles, which is what? The New Testament, right? So the Old Testament and the New Testament together, the Tanakh and the Apostolic Scriptures, that's our foundation. That's what we're built on, right? That's so basic, eh? But that's huge. Um, I like it. In Ephesians 3, 5, he calls the apostles the holy apostles. 
Kind of like, that's kind of cool. They're like the holy apostles. Um, in 3 verse 17, I'll, we'll finish our look at Ephesians with this. He says, Messiah dwells in our hearts. So like, that's where you're going to find him. And then he talks about being rooted and grounded in love. So I don't know, just remember that, hey? When we're like, when we're strong in love, when we stay focused on love, when that's a priority, we're going to have a good foundation. We're not going to get all wonky. Because when you're not rooted and grounded, that's when you get all unstable and wonky and things blow up, blow up right? So love's where it's at. Love is where it's at. Um, yeah. Let's do, let's do one thing from the Torah. We're going we're gonna to act something out. And this will be like our last thing. Uh, I want to act out the leper cleansing ritual. Yeah, that'll be cool. So um, I've arranged for someone to be miraculously struck with leprosy. And kind of like Moses, you know? No, just joking. We're not going to try that. But anyway, okay, like Leviticus 13 to 15. Let's just, let's just, uh, we'll, we'll finish our study time with this. The middle verse of the Torah is Leviticus 13, 33, okay? So, like, this stuff about cleansing from leprosy is the very center of the Torah. The Torah, in some regards, revolves around these laws about leprosy and how to, how to deal with it. Um, that, that's the middle letter. There's the middle letter of the Torah, the middle verse, and then there's the middle word. So we have three, three middles of the Torah, it makes it funner. This is the middle verse of the Torah, Leviticus thirteen thirty-three. So you could you could say that just to like this is the heart of the Torah. This this leper cleansing stuff also tells us something about the heart of the gospel, and that's where I really lock in. That's where I feel like things get more uh, extremely relevant. Um, in Leviticus thirteen, verses two and nine, it says uh, it says this: when an Adam has a and then it has all of these leprous things. So that word Adam means anybody and everybody, male or female. It means humanity, right? So in other words, he's saying like leprosy is a picture of the disease that has stricken all humanity as a result of sin. Um, last year when we covered this parsha, I had a series of pictures of people who were in, in, in severe cases of leprosy. Uh, it, it broke me up. It, it was it, I cried looking at pictures because it's so sad. I, I'm not. I just I didn't feel like I didn't feel like I was supposed to. We're supposed to look at them this year. But if you want, just go home, get on Google Images, and just do leprosy and be prepared to cry because it's really sad what happens to people with leprosy. Um, I'll read to you a little thing about leprosy, and then we'll act out this uh, this picture of a guy being cleansed. And uh, we'll see how it's a picture of Yeshua and what he does for each one of us and what he wants to do for humanity. Uh, here, w- Wikipedia, our, uh, our source of ultimate and infallible truth, has uh, this to say about leprosy. Leprosy, or Hansen's disease, is a chronic disease of the peripheral nerves and mucosa of the upper respiratory tract. Skin lesions are the primary external sign. Left untreated, leprosy can be progressive, causing permanent damage to the skin, nerves, limbs, and eyes. Contrary to folklore, leprosy doesn't cause body parts to fall off, although they can become numb and or diseased as a result of the disease. Like, man, as I, as I, as I listen to this, and I remember that leprosy is a picture of us as humanity, it's like, 
becoming diseased, becoming numb. Like, isn't that alone so true of us as humanity without Messiah? Just becoming numb. Historically, leprosy has affected humanity for over 4,000 years. It's interesting because that takes us almost right back to where the flood um, is dated to happen. DNA taken from the shrouded remains of a man discovered in a tomb next to the old city of Jerusalem shows him to be the first human proven to have suffered from leprosy. Do you think that's significant somehow? Like the oldest case of leprosy is DNA from a man who is buried in the old city of Jerusalem. I don't know. Maybe leprosy affects religious people too on, on a soul level. Who knows? So, um, yeah. Leviticus 13, 45 and 30, 46. Um, I, I'm going to need like a leper for this. Someone who's going to be our, our leper for, for this. Um, who wants to be my, our, our leper? Don't worry, we're not going to do any, we're not going to like spray paint you red or anything like that. No, yeah, we're not going to shave your eyebrows and stuff. Okay, Dave, you can be the lapper. So um, you'll have to come up here. Okay. So you can stand right there. Okay. And um, we'll just read about you. Okay, so it says, As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn. So we want you to just, just tear it. No, just kidding. You don't have to. Okay, just act it out. You don't have to tear your clothes. And the hair of his head shall be uncovered. And he shall, so you're not allowed to wear your uh, turban. So take off your turban. And he shall cover his mustache. You have a mustache? This is good. I think that means like wearing your clothes right up to your mustache or something. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay, this is good. And he shall cry, unclean, unclean. Unclean, unclean. Okay, good. Oh, yeah. I'm unclean. Yeah. Okay, he shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He's unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Sorry. That's devotion. Okay, so this is a pretty sad picture. You know, someone who's isolated, who's separate from, separated from community, um, someone who has to walk around shouting unclean. You have a serious social stigma on you. Um, you have no friends. You have no friends. Yeah, except for other lepers. Um, okay, so now in um, Leviticus chapter 14, it describes the cleansing of the leper. So we're going to break it down and we're going to see how it's a picture of the gospel. Uh, I need a Cohen. I need a priest for this part. Who's going to be our Cohen? <laughs> William. William. Uh, Okay, Mike. Hey, you can even wear your tallit. Right on. Okay. So here, come over here a little bit more. And then Mr. Cohen Godol, Mr. Ha- Mr. Priest, you can stand there. And uh, okay. So firstly, it's, uh, this is a ritual that's conducted under the auspices of the priest. Uh, who is our priest? Yeshua, right, okay. So this is like a picture of what Yeshua does for us. I think we could infer that. Uh, number two, okay, you're going to take four elements. Now, Tears is at the stage where she's learning about make-believe, so she'll have her fork, and uh, I'll be like, oh, Tirza, 
um, can I have, feed, maybe you can feed me or something. So she'll pretend to take something and pretend to put it in my mouth. And I'll be like, mmm, num num, what was that? And she'll be like, banana or avocado or whatever. It's so cute. I wonder if she would do it right now. Here, maybe break, let, grab her. Let's see if she would do it with a fork or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so cute. So we're going like, to have to like, make believe this, okay? We're going to uh, we're gonna have to imagine it, I guess. Hey, Tirza. Tirza, I'm hungry. Can I have some soup, baby? Here, I'll... Here, come here, Tirza. Okay. Oh, I'm hungry, Tirza. Can I have something to eat? Mmm, yummy. Can I have some more? Mmm, yum. What, what was that? What was that, Tirza? <laughs> okay. Toda, Tirza, thank you. Are you. You have some too, baby. Have some too. Mmm, yum. What is it? Apples. Apples. Okay, good. It's apples. Okay, you want to go to Ima? Toda, Tirza, we love you. Okay, yeah, so we'll just kind of make believe this, right? Act it out like that. Okay, so, um, you, uh, Mr. Coingadol, you're going to need to take two clean live birds. If you could show those to us. Oh, you got it. They're still flapping away. Um, cedarwood? No, let me smell it to see if it's cedarwood. Mmm, that's nice. I love cedar smell. Um, you're not allowed to smell it Mm-mm. until you're cleansed. No, I got my uh, purifying T-shirt. Okay, good. Uh, scarlet string. We need some scarlet string. <laughs> okay, great. You got that. And then um, hyssop. We need some hyssop. Okay, great. How convenient. Everything's right here. Okay, so that's the second thing. You take those elements. Uh, three, go outside the camp to the special venue for this ritual, a place of running water. So let's just... Um, okay, great. So we're just going to walk over there. going to go outside, go outside of town. Now, we can't move too far or our live stream friends won't be able to see us. So we have to, uh, <laughs> have to kind of... Yeah. Okay, so the, the Hebrew word for... Uh, Running water is maim chaim, which literally means what? Living water. So running water is living water in Hebrew. Camp living water south of PA, maybe some of you have been there. That's different. Um, now, okay, number four, we're going to slay the bird in a clay jar over the running water. So come over here a little bit more. The, the running water is right here. Okay. Yeah. So uh, you slay it over the clay jar, in the clay jar. Um, kill it in the clay jar over the running water, evidently. Don't look, this is going to be a little bit violent. Ouch. Okay. Okay, thank you, good. Uh, number five. Okay, so take the live bird, and you dip the live bird, along with the cedar wood, the scarlet string, and the hyssop, into the clay pot full of water that has the other bird's blood in it. Well, I have to put the hyssop in first, and then cedar wood. Hyssop, cedar wood. Yeah, the birds. Dunk. Don't hold him in there too long, or he's going to die. Okay, good, good. Okay, now you're going to sprinkle the one being cleansed seven times. Using the bird, the live bird to sprinkle? Or no, just my hand. Yeah, just, just your hand is good. And you do it seven times. 
Okay. What would that be a picture of? Sprinkling the one being cleansed seven times. Well, Naaman went and got himself, uh, yeah, to dip himself in the river seven times as well. That's true. Let's move over here a little bit. Just both of us move over there. Oh, completion. Okay. Um, also, okay, the, the, the bird being killed, what would that be a picture of in terms of the gospel? Okay, Yeshua's atonement. It's kind of like pretty evident, eh? But I want to make sure we don't miss that because it's kind of the point of this, I think. Okay, number seven, pronounce him clean. You are clean. <laughs> Woohoo! Yeah, yeah, okay. I don't have to hold my shirt up anymore. Yeah. Okay. So what does that look like in terms of the gospel? Yeah, he says, I have cleansed you. You are clean. I don't know, sometimes I think we need to remember that. Yeah. Okay, uh, number eight. Let the live bird go free over the open field. I like that one. Wow. So what is that a picture of? Freedom. Freedom, Yeshua Spirit. Okay, number nine. The one being cleansed washes his clothes. Sure. Oh, there's some blue tape on the ground that looks like a yeah. little running water. It's perfect. Okay, good stuff. You washed your clothes. Um, number 10. The one being cleansed shaves off all his hair on the seventh day. Oh. Yeah, yeah. All? All of it. Oh, that's going to be a job. Yeah. Don't tell your wife that you're going to have that done either. Just walk in and surprise her one day. <laughs> You know, I, I, uh, when I was like 16, I dyed my hair and my eyebrows like blonde. It was not a good idea. It looked so stupid. I like dyed them bla- back the next day, cause, but it was so freakish. But anyway, having your eyebrows like shaved right off would be even wilder, I think. So anyway, uh, what, is that a, what is that a picture of? Washing your clothes and having all your hair shaved off? Being cleansed. New birth? Okay. Yeah, I like that. Babies don't... Yeah, babies... Are, uh. Okay. Number 11. On the eighth day, he's presented by the priest who cleansed him at the sanctuary. Ta-da. 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 <laughs> okay. Uh, 12. He brings three sheep as offerings and presents a guilt offering, a sin offering, a burnt offering. <laughs> <laughs> And then a grain offering and half a liter of oil. Okay, so you brought all your, all your goods here? No. Oh. Okay, 13. The priest slaughters the guilt offering and puts the blood of the guilt offering on the right earlobe, the right thumb, and the right big toe of the man or woman being cleansed. Uh, okay, you got it. Do any of you guys like know what dictionary.com is? Mm-hmm. I, I, I get like the dictionary.com like email of the day that has all kinds of cool words. And one of them this week was bedaubed. So his Dobbed. toe, Dobbed. his thumb, and his earlobe are now bedaubed. Dobbed. Yeah. That's really nerdy. I know. I, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I can't hide it. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Okay, so what's that a picture of? Covering. Covering. Priesthood, or anointing. 
priesthood? Oh yeah, they do that for the priests, I think. Being accepted, set apart. Designated for a purpose. Okay. When you when you think about your when you think about your feet, you think about where you go, right? Almost your mission in life. When you think about your hands, you think about what you do, your your actions, maybe your your work life also. Um, you wouldn't be able to do much without your hands. Um, and then when you think about your ear, what do, what's the function of your ear? ear. What you listen to. And you know, everybody in this world is listening to somebody. The question is who, eh? So maybe the blood on those areas could be like a picture of our lives lived as a result of the fact that Yeshua atoned for us. Um, that's what I would get out of that. Okay, then um, 14, the priest pours oil in his left palm. So put in your left palm. And sprinkles the oil with his other hand seven times before Yahweh. Three. Four. Five. Six. Seven. Stop. Good. All right. Okay, 15. The priest puts some of the oil on the blood that is on the right earlobe, the right thumb, and the right big toe of the man or woman being cleansed. So now he puts some oil on there. be funner to do this with a sharpie, hey? So he walks around for a week with a red earlobe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Good idea. Yeah. So what is that a picture of? Anointing. Anointing? Okay. So like God's spirit, hey? 16. What's that? Yeah. Isn't this an elaborate ritual? Yeah. I love this, like, I love the mystical significance of it. Um, 16, the rest of the oil he puts on the head of the man or woman being cleansed. Nice and shiny, there we go. (laughs) Okay, and then finally, (laughs) your wife's going to stop you with... (laughs) Okay, and then the 17th and final one is The priest slaughters the sin offering and the burnt offering and offers the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. Ouch. Oh. It's always my least favorite part. Okay. Okay, and then. So then the passage concludes by saying, Thus the priest shall make atonement for him, and he will be clean. There we have it. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, really, like, we read that chapter, and I admit I was lost. Like, you try and follow along, and you try and get stuff out of it, but I just can't when we're reading as a congregation. So... Anyway, hopefully that will stay with us. Remember, that was you as a leper, and that was what Yeshua did for you, and you're clean if you've, you know, if, if, you, if you've accepted him and everything. So let's finish with that. What do you think? Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. 
They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.